Timothy to open your word, even to a passage that may uh, be oftentimes glimpsed over. And we ask that even in these list of names, you would show us uh, your purpose, show us the, the history that you have been working in and orchestrating to bring about your salvation, and help us to see, even in a genealogy, rich truths about your character and about your work in history and even today in our lives. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Before we spend some time in these verses, I want to point out how the birth narrative in Matthew's gospel it differs from Luke's gospel. And in fact, if you take the beginning of Matthew's gospel and you compare it to the beginning of Luke's gospel, you'll notice that Matthew leaves out one very important event. Does anybody know? It's actually the birth of Jesus. Strangely enough, we talk about Matthew's birth narrative. He actually leaves out the birth of Jesus, the actual moment of his birth. Now, the question is, why would he not include it? If you're going to talk about the birth of Jesus, I feel like that's important. Why include all these names, all these prophecies that come to Mary and Joseph, the story of the wise men, Herod? Why include all of that information but leave out the actual birth of Jesus? Well, Matthew's choice of details is intentional. He includes information that fits his purpose. And his purpose is to show that Jesus is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, that he is the Christ, the son of David, and the son of Abraham. And so I want us to keep that in mind as we're going through these names and we're working through them, that this is very intentional who he includes and how he structures the genealogy because it tells us something about Jesus. So with that in mind, Let's begin with these opening verses in chapter 1. Uh, this is verses 1 through 6, and I want us to see that, number one, Jesus is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Old Testament prophecy. Now, obviously, there are far too many names here for us to, to cover, um, but that's okay. Um, all of which, they're included here to show us something about Jesus. But did you notice that two names appear multiple times? And two names are used to structure the genealogy, Abraham and David. Matthew structures his genealogy, not just a random list of names, but actually structures it in such a way to show that Jesus is connected to two very important people, David and then to Abraham. And what I want to do is to point out why these two people are so important. What does a connection to David show? What does a connection to Abraham actually show? And, the, and I'll begin with Abraham. What Matthew is doing here is showing that Jesus is a fulfillment of God's promise made to Abraham centuries in the past. Turn over with me to a familiar passage I know, Genesis chapter 12. Turn over there, Genesis chapter 12. This is the moment in the Genesis where we turn from proto-history and sort of creation things into the patriarchs. Genesis chapter 12. In these opening verses, God calls this seemingly random character, of course it's not, uh, to leave his homeland and travel to a distant country. Look at chapter 12, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, uh, eventually it'll be Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. There's an incredible promise. Um, I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And then here's this promise. And in you all the families of the earth 
shall be blessed. Now imagine if you're Abram at this point, what a bold promise. Here comes God to call me from my land to go to some place that he hasn't even told me yet, promising that somehow through me, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. And of course, if you follow the story of Abraham, that promise of being a blessing and having multiple nations come from you seems more and more fanciful as he gets older and yet has no what? Children. And Matthew, in his gospel here, as he is uh, structuring this genealogy, he's trying to tie Jesus to Abraham. Abraham is the patriarch of Israel. He's the sort of earthly father of the entire nation of Israel, God's people. But what we see here in this encounter back in Genesis 12 is that Abraham is not just going to be a father to the Jews, but he's actually going to be a father of many nations. And not just many nations from him, and yet through him all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. And by tracing the lineage of Jesus back to Abraham, Matthew is showing his readers that after centuries and centuries and centuries of waiting and not being sure what that's going to look like, the long-awaited fulfillment of God's original promise to Abraham is here. And it's Jesus. The promise that through Abraham all nations would be blessed is finally fulfilled. That salvation would be for Jews and Gentiles. And in fact, there's a very interesting feature here about the way Matthew structures his genealogy and then his gospel. If you look at the genealogy, it starts with Abraham and Israel. And at the very end, you get Jesus, who is a blessing to all nations. His gospel account also does the same thing. The beginning of Matthew's gospel is Israel. Jesus is preaching. He calls Jewish disciples. He preaches to the Jews. But if you fast forward to the end of Matthew, chapter 28, you have Jesus telling his disciples to go where? The entire world. The gospel account mirrors this branching out of the genealogy, starting with God's work in Israel and through them being a blessing to all nations. So does the gospel account. Jesus preaches at first to the Jews. He's calling Jewish disciples. His ministry expands, and he sends out his followers to be a blessing to all nations. How would they do that? By taking the gospel with them, by preaching about salvation in Christ, not just for the Jews, not just for this select group of people, but for all who would believe. And it is through Christ that Abraham is now uh, a blessing to all nations. Jesus is the greater son of Abraham. He is the fulfillment of this long-awaited prophecy. Matthew traces uh, Jesus' lineage back to Abraham, but he also traces it back to another very important figure for the Jews, King David. Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promise made to David. Turn to one other passage real quick, 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7. It's okay if you need to use the table of contents. Uh, these are kind of back there in the Old Testament, but 2 Samuel chapter 7, this is um, sort of David is hearing a, a word from the Lord. Remember, David wanted to build a temple. God said, no, you're not going to do that. Your son will do that. And God comes here to speak to David by the prophet, and he makes this incredible promise to him. Look at 2 Samuel chapter 7, beginning in verse 12. This is what the Lord is saying. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up for your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. 
David's like, okay, great. My sons will be king. Okay. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom for how long? Forever. Huh. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. Now, here's where it gets amazing. Verse 16, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. God promises David that his offspring shall have an everlasting kingdom, that his throne would be established forever. Now, how in the world could that be? I mean, the the greatest kings live a handful of decades. The most powerful kingdoms rise and fall. How do you have a kingdom that's everlasting? How do you have a king who is everlasting? David would need an offspring greater than any of the kings we read about in the Old Testament. Even the kings who, they were right, they were good, they were righteous, they led the people, even them, they died and they were buried. David would need a greater offspring. And by tracing the lineage of Jesus, back over in Matthew chapter 1, by tracing the lineage of Jesus to King David, Matthew is showing that Jesus is the true king of the Jews. He's not just uh, the next in line. He's not just the next guy who got voted on. He is the greater king of the Jews. He is a son through royal lineage. Later in chapter 2, when the wise men come to Herod and they tell him, we're here, we're searching for the king of the Jews. And Herod, of course, is a little upset by that and says, where can I find this person? The wise men recount a prophecy from Micah chapter 2. This is Matthew chapter 2, verses 5. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Jesus is the true king. He is in the lineage of David, and he is the rightful heir to the throne. But he won't be a king like those who came before him. Matthew will show in his gospel, as you read all the way through, that Jesus is a greater king, ruling not over an earthly kingdom, but a heavenly kingdom. And though slain by death, he will actually rise triumphant over death to rule his kingdom forever. And what that means for us as believers today is that our hope should never be in an earthly king or president or an earthly kingdom. Because no matter how good they are, no matter how well they lead us, they come and they go. And no matter how powerful an empire or a kingdom or a country is, they all come and go. Our hope as believers ought to be in an eternal kingdom ruled by an eternal king, the true king, the son of God, and our great savior. Matthew structures his genealogy to show his readers, guys, this this person born in a manger, very uninspiring birth, very uninspiring family. If you trace it back, this is actually the fulfillment of a prophecy and a promise made to Abraham thousand years ago. This is a fulfillment of a promise made to David. This is the king, and he is here. And as we look at this list of names, the the question you may be having, and the question I had is, what do I do with this name? Like this list of names, what do I what do I do with that? Because we want to we want to come to the scripture and and learn and read, and then we want to apply. We want to ask the question of how do I live now for Jesus, knowing this. 
And so I want to give you just a few points of application. An old mentor of mine used to call them walking points. A couple of walking points to take with you as you think about what we're learning so far. Uh, number one is that God's promises can be trusted. Uh, hopefully you have some trustworthy friends and family. Hopefully we all do. But, you know, even the most trustworthy people, we make promises and agreements and we drop the ball sometimes. You know, even in our best days, it's like, look, I'll be there for the meeting and then your car won't start. Um, I'll be there for this event and then you wake up sick as a dog. Um, I'll be there for that. I'll make it on time for this. And it's a flat tire. It's a car wreck. It's a whatever. Or it's just, sorry, I forgot. We make promises and we don't keep them. But when you look through the lineage of Jesus here, and I would encourage you on your own time, look up every single one of these names. Look up in the Old Testament. See what God was doing. What we find here is a truth that God's promises can be trusted. Even when everybody else lets us down, even when every other authority and, and figure we look to lets us down, a lot of promises made, few kept, God's promises can be trusted. And what that means for us then is as we begin to look forward in the New Testament, we think about promises like God is going to forgive us of our sins. He promises to make us new. He promises to never leave us or forsake us. He promises to make a home in heaven for us. He promises to come back and get us. If God's promises can be trusted based on what we know from the past, as recounted here in the genealogy, then that means God's promises can now be trusted in the future. We don't find in the genealogy of Jesus sort of reading through the names and reading through the names and suddenly a gap because God had an off day. No, generation after generation, story after story, person after person, God fulfills his promises and he does not let us down. And so as we move forward, regardless of how long it takes Jesus to come back, regardless of how wonderful life is or how terrible life is, we can know that God's promises can be trusted. Number two, we can know that God's timeline might not match our timeline. Anyone ever felt like you wish God would come to you for your opinion? Because you've got a fantastic plan. you got it laid out. you got the timeline. You know the people. And it's, for some reason, God doesn't come to us and ask, hey, what do you think I should do? You, you read this timeline or this genealogy here. You read through the Old Testament, and you can see time and time again that God's timeline just doesn't match ours. All throughout the Old Testament, people are waiting. They're waiting for the Messiah. Century after century, they're waiting for the Messiah. And I think back then there were people just like today who say, oh, look at the news. It's close. He's coming. We're getting closer. And yet time goes by and people die and generations come and go. Our timeline does not often match God's timeline. In fact, I've pretty well learned that whatever I think the timeline will be, that's what it won't be. You know, what's God going to do? Well, I could tell you what he won't do because this is what I want him to do. But he does something that's better. And I want to point out that just because his timeline does not match ours does not mean that somehow God is unfaithful or unloving or forgetful or distant or any of those things that we would, we would want to put on him because we, things aren't happening the way we want to. God works in his timeline, and we have to remember though it is painful sometimes, that his timeline is better than anything I could come up with. And it is ultimately for what will be to his glory and actually to our good as well. And so as time doesn't seem to match what we want it to be, 
The takeaway from a genealogy like this is that his timeline might not match ours, but it's better. And the number three we see in this genealogy, what I call a heritage of waiting. A heritage of waiting. We don't like to wait here in America. We, I, myself included, we don't like to wait. But you see in this long line of names a heritage of waiting, people who waited. I'm sure you're familiar with Hebrews chapter 11. We call that the hall of faith. All these great faith figures from the Old Testament who waited on the Lord. And the writer goes through all the sort of the big names, celebrities, and all these people who, who served God. And he comes to the end of Hebrews chapter 11, and he makes this pretty incredible statement. He says, and all of these, all those great fathers of the faith, all these great prophets and leaders, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Huh. Since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Read the Old Testament. Read Hebrews chapter 11. You see all these people who waited for the Lord. Just incredible demonstration of faith, of trust, of waiting. And then remind yourself that not a single one of them saw the fulfillment. Not a single one of them saw Jesus born. They all waited. They waited for century after century, waiting. They had glimpses of what God was going to do, but they didn't see it. Now, does that mean that God was somehow unfaithful? Certainly not. We have seen the fulfillment of Jesus being born, the coming Messiah. God waiting does not somehow mean that God is forgetful or disingenuous. Because not only do we have a record of those who waited, we have a record of the fulfillment. And we will see, and this is something that is amazing, we will see one day when we get to heaven, we will talk to people like Abraham or Jacob or David or um, Hezekiah or all these great Old Testament figures. And we'll say, hey, what was it like waiting? What was it like getting little pieces of what God was going to do but not seeing the full picture? What was it like? I have a feeling they might ask us, what was it like knowing? What was it like to live knowing the fulfillment of God's promises, the coming of the Messiah? Some of you may be here this morning and you're waiting. You've been waiting on the Lord for a long time. Maybe you're waiting on the salvation of a loved one. Maybe it's a child who's gone astray and you've prayed for year after year, decade after decade, asking the Lord to save them, but no answer yet. Maybe you've been praying year after year, God, heal this sickness that I have. Uh, take away this burden that I have year after year, and you've yet to see an answer. Our temptation is to look at that and say, God must not be hearing me. God must have forgotten my troubles. Uh, God must have um, uh, forgotten what he was planning to do with me. But that's not the case. And if you're here this morning and you're waiting and it feels like you've been waiting for a long time, I just want to encourage you not to give up. And I know that's easier said than done. But the lesson we see from this long line of people is that we should not stop trusting in the Lord. The lesson from a genealogy is that a delay from our perspective in no way undermines God's faithfulness in the end. I, let's go back in history and talk to some of these Old Testament characters. I bet you'd hear something like, Man, it just seems like God's never going to answer. It just seems like God's never going to send the Messiah. And yet we fast forward and we find that actually he does. Right on time, right on schedule. And so a delay from our perspective 
in no way undermines God's faithfulness in the end. Like the Old Testament saints, we await our long-expected Jesus. Let me read for you this, a hymn that we sing. And Charles Wesley writes this hymn, and he pairs together two waiting. There are elements in here of waiting for the first coming of Jesus, what it was like to be the Old Testament saints longing for his coming, and then what it's like to be us as New Testament believers waiting for his return. He says, come thou long expected Jesus, born to set thy people free. We're in bondage. Come free us. From our, uh, from our fears and sin, release us. Let us find our rest in thee. Israel's strength and consolation, hope of all the earth thou art. How could he be the hope of all the earth? Oh, he would come to bring salvation to all who would believe. Dear desire of every nation, joy of every longing heart. Come thou mighty, humble Savior, God incarnate as a child. Wow. Laying aside divine behavior, frailness taking, meek and mild. Here we wait in expectation, now from heaven to earth descend. That's both coming. From thy sweet celestial station, come to be our loving friend. He came the first time and we wait for him to come the second time. Born thy people to deliver, born a child and yet a king. Born to reign in us forever, now thy gracious kingdom bring. Now we're thinking second coming, we're longing for him to bring his kingdom. By thine own eternal spirit, rule in all our hearts alone. By thine all-sufficient merit, raise us to thy glorious throne. When's the last time you prayed for Jesus to come back? When's the last time you looked out on the world or you just looked at your own life and said, Lord Jesus, come today, fix this mess, fix what is broken, right what is wrong, make just what is unjust. We, like the Old Testament saints before us, we find ourselves in a situation where we have to wait. And the lineage of Jesus here, this list of names, it shows us that as time goes by and we may think God is waiting too long, a delay, in our perspective, in no way undermines God's faithfulness. He always proves faithful in the end. If you remember, our, our main idea is that Jesus is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, which we've seen, but he's also the fulfillment, the fulfillment of God's plan of salvation. Look at Matthew chapter 1 again. Uh, he begins in verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Uh, look down at verse 15, I'll jump in there. Eliud, the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar, the father of Mathen, and Mathen, the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, get this, who is called Christ. Names of people and titles of people oftentimes tell us a lot about that person. You know, if you meet somebody, like a, a lady who's named Peace, or Hope, or Grace, I just assume they're going to be very gracious, and hopeful, and kind. Now, sometimes they don't live up to that, but you'd expect that. Uh, you meet a guy who's named Alexander, and I think, ah, yeah, that's like a strong, conquer-the-world name. Uh, or you think about titles. If someone is the president of something, oh, I figure, well, they're probably very strong, very powerful, you know, direct, organized, all those characteristics. They're the director of something. They're a commander. Those names and titles tend to tell us a little bit about someone. And it's the same case here in Matthew. Matthew bookends his genealogy. I, ho I hope you saw this. If not, I'll point it out. 
in verse 1 and verse 16, he bookends his genealogy with a name and a title. Matthew chapter 1, the book of the genealogy of who? Jesus Christ. Matthew chapter 1, verse 16, Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, whom, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. Taken together, the name and the title communicate one central truth about this baby who is to be born. He is the fulfillment of God's plan of salvation. He is the fulfillment. Now, I, let me just point this out. Sometimes people don't know. Christ is not his last name. Okay? It's, not, it's not the Christ family, Mary Christ, Joseph Christ, none of that. It's Jesus is his name, Christ is his title. And Matthew includes both of those here. And so let me just point out, uh, he says his name will be Jesus. Um, Dr. David read for us from Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. The angel says she'll bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. Why? For he shall save his people from his sins. Jesus means the Lord saves or the Lord is salvation. The very name of Jesus, every time you talk to him, every time you talk about him or you mention him, his very name is a constant reminder that God saves his people. His name is a constant reminder. But in addition to his name, he has this title. He will be the Christ. Christ is the Greek form of the Hebrew Messiah. Both of them simply mean the anointed one. Now, this has all sorts of Old Testament imagery. Kings, when they were chosen, they would be pulled out from everybody else, set apart. They would be anointed with oil, pour the oil on them as a sign of having been set apart for a specific purpose. Matthew says that Jesus is the Messiah, that he has been set apart for a unique purpose. We actually get that in the life of Jesus. Later in Matthew chapter 16, remember Peter, they're all sitting around, you know, who is this Jesus character? Peter gets it right says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And right after that, in Matthew 16, verse 21, Matthew records for us, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Jesus knew exactly what his purpose was. He was the Christ. He was the Messiah. He was the anointed one who would save his people. The entire reason he comes is for this purpose of being the Savior. His followers, they recognize that. John chapter 1, verse 29. Um, John the Baptist is out with his people. Jesus walks up. Do you remember what John says? He says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. They knew. Here is this man seemingly insignificant from a podunk town and an unknown family, and yet he is actually the anointed one. When you think of Advent or Christmas, what kind of words come to your mind? What kind of thoughts come to your mind? Maybe it's presents or eating too much food, things like that. Maybe you're more spiritual and you think like God's love, um, forgiveness, uh, the incarnation, fulfillment of prophecy. Does anybody have in your mind, when you think about Advent or Christmas, the word destruction? Try that next time people say, hey, what, what's your favorite thing about Christmas? Be like, destruction. And you'd be like, no, I don't mean like the presents after they've been played with. I don't mean the dinner table. Destruction. In 1 John chapter 3, John makes this incredible statement. He says, uh, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. 
For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. We think, okay, fair enough. But then he says, the reason the Son of God appeared was to do what? To destroy the works of the devil. You know, Christmas, we think, oh, Christmas. It's kind of like nice. Christmas is about destruction. Christmas is about conquering. Christmas is about the enemy being beaten. Christmas is about Jesus, the Messiah, coming for this express purpose of destroying the works of the devil, freeing us from our bondage to sin, raising us to new life. The entire Old Testament history, the lineage of Jesus' family, it testifies to the fact that Jesus himself and nobody else is God's plan for salvation. Everything in the Old Testament leading up to Jesus says that this person is God's plan for salvation. And he has come to destroy the works of the devil and free us from our sin. And what's amazing, too, is you can spend some time in the genealogy and learn that this salvation that God offers through Jesus is not just for certain people, spiritual elites, people who have their stuff together. It's not like that at all. The names in this list show us that God's salvation extends even to outsiders and outcasts. I mean, just just take a gander here at this lineage, and you see Gentiles like Rahab and Ruth. Plenty of Jews would have said, no, I don't, we don't want those people in here. Those people are way too sinful. They are outside of the covenant. They could never be saved. And yet, not only do you find them, they're not on the back row, like God's like, all right, fine, there's a few extra seats, you all come in. No, 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 they're in the lineage of Jesus. These people that the Jews would have said, no, you guys are too much, too far, too sinful. They're in the lineage. And then you look through the lineage as well, and you see generations of sinful people. And I don't mean to, you know, shed light, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? I don't mean to downplay people's family problems. Because all of us, I'm sure, at some point have some history in our family that we probably don't want to talk about. Trauma and abuse or just, the, just generations of sin and brokenness. But you look at this genealogy and you think, you think your family's got problems. Look at Jesus' family. Read through this list of names and you find liars, cheats, murderers, adulterers, idolaters. Every bit of wickedness, every sin you can think of is represented in this list of people, and yet it's the names of the very family of our Savior. You know what that says? It says that God can use even the most messed up of lineage, the most wickedness of people, people who are broken by sin. He can use that. And not just can, but he does use that to bring about the greatest plan and purpose in the history of anything. God saving his people in his son, Jesus. You can see that in these list of names. God's salvation includes people that we might think don't deserve it. People that we might think haven't earned it. It extends to all of those. And that's good because, you know, I think I've mentioned this too, when we read Old Testament stories, we tend to read ourselves in as the hero. We're not. All of the sins you see listed in here, I mean, Abraham, just start with Abraham. He had some great moments, but boy, he had some terrible moments, repeatable terrible moments. And you think, boy, I'm just like that. But praise God, his name's on the list. Praise God that my days of not being as focused on the Lord or my days where I just have completely fallen off the cart, those don't undo God's purposes in my life. That He's going to save me despite that. 
when you celebrate Christmas, I wonder if you approach it with this sort of very spiritual thinking holidays kind of mentality, or do you just approach it sort of as a cultural holiday, a chance to eat a lot, get some presents, and fall off a ladder putting lights on your house? For a lot of people today, I think it's just, it's just a holiday, just a chance to take a few days off work, nothing much more than that. But for us as believers, I wonder if we celebrate Advent and Christmas because we've experienced new life in Christ. I hope that we do. Maybe you're here this morning or you're watching online, and for you it is just a, it's just a holiday, nothing special. Jesus was born in the flesh for a specific purpose of making payment for our sin. He is literally the one born to die. He lived a perfect life and he died in our place and he calls us to repent of our sins and receive his salvation. And until we do that, this is just a holiday of presents and lights. But once we receive the forgiveness that he offers, once we experience this salvation that he has um, secured for us, then Christmas becomes a whole new day. It becomes a celebration of this moment in history when God the Son is born into the world. Again, podunk town, unknown family, and yet you trace it back and you find that this is the one who's the fulfillment of everything we've been hoping for. If you're here this morning or you're watching online and you, for you it's just a cultural holiday, I want to encourage you. Trust in the Lord. Look at the history. It's there, and it shows us that Jesus is really who he says he is. And I want to challenge you and just encourage you, if you don't know Christ, put your faith in him. Make this Christmas your first real Christmas. Not just a holiday with presents, but a holy day of reverence and rejoicing and celebrating. The truth is, for some of us, we may not be too proud of our lineage. As I said earlier, I think we've all got branches we'd prefer just to snap off and not worry about those. You might have some limbs on the family tree that remind you of terrible sin and destruction. Hopefully you've got some great names there that are maybe models of the faith. You know, old grandma so-and-so, she just loved Jesus. Hopefully you have those as well. Jesus' family is the same way. There's some great names on there, people that we look up to and we see as models. There's also some names on there that we see not so great times. But God used that lineage to bring about the birth of our Savior. Saints of old waited for the Messiah, and finally he came. We have received him already, those of us who know him, and yet we ourselves are waiting on him. Matthew's genealogy proves that Jesus is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, and he is the fulfillment of God's plan of salvation. That's why I want to end with this verse, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20. Paul says this, such a good verse. He says, for all the promises of God find their yes in who? Jesus. All the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. And he says, that is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. All the promises are fulfilled in Jesus, and we utter our amen, and we rejoice in that. Let me pray for us. Our Father in heaven, we are, again, grateful for your scriptures, grateful for the lineage that's recorded here, grateful that we can see all of the ups and downs in that lineage, the good times and the bad, 
and see how you are working despite all of our misgivings, all of our failures, all of our uh, moments of opposition. You work to bring about the fulfillment of your promise. You have provided the Lord Jesus. And now may we go forward uh, clinging to our own promises. Promises of forgiveness and salvation. Promises not to cast us out, but to draw us near. Promises to make a home for us and to come back for us. May you strengthen us today. May in our moments where we begin to doubt the promises, may you turn our minds back to see every time you've kept one that we might not falter in our faith, uh, but cross the finish line in faith. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Well, let's stand together. I want to invite the band back up as we sing uh, one more great Christmas hymn and uh, just rejoice together. town of Bethlehem.
Sunday in Advent season, you may think, uh, well, Advent's about the birth of Jesus and communion's about the death. Uh, But I think it's fitting for us that we would do so because we tend to, I think, uh, myself included, I think we tend to compartmentalize these two holidays. We tend to say, oh, it's Christmas, it's all about the birth, and forget that we are headed to Easter. And likewise, on Easter, we think, oh, it's all about the death, and we forget that we've come from Christmas. And so I think it's great for us to share this meal together. As I said earlier, Jesus is the very person who was born to die. We celebrate the birth of Jesus in this season because we know where we're headed. We're headed to Jerusalem, to a bloody cross where Jesus purchases and secures salvation for his people. And so as we take this meal today, I think it's so fitting that in one part of our mind, we're thinking it's glorious that Christ is born. On the other side, we're thinking it's glorious that he's born because he's coming to pay for our sins. Uh, Let me read for us what Paul recounts here in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. He says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. body of Christ broken for us. Do this in remembrance of him. Paul continues and says in the same way, also Jesus took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me.
born in a manger, later to be spilt on Calvary's cross. Paul says, do this in remembrance of Christ, and every time we do it, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's do this in remembrance. Let me pray for us. Our Father, we rejoice in taking the elements, uh, rejoice in remembering the sacrifice that you've made. And as we pair the two together with Christmas and the Advent season, uh, we are simply in amazement of how you would work out history to save your people. May you be praised in our midst today. In Jesus' name, amen.